everyone, I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this, of course, is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And I mean it, whoever. And we'll get into that later. And uh, apologies if this subject matter seems a bit stale. I'm going to be revisiting the siege on the Capitol. And that's because I'm going to be issuing a correction that's tied into that. And so there was a story going around in the wake of the siege that a Trump supporter had died by accidentally tasing himself in the testicles. Yes, we're revisiting that story. According to the narrative that was going around, the man supposedly had a taser in his pants pocket and it accidentally discharged while he was trying to steal a portrait. And as darkly absurd and entertaining as the thought of that scenario might be, it turns out that according to the man's wife, the story's false and he simply died of a heart attack. And I remember joking with a friend, uh, kind of half-joking, that isn't the man's wife kind of a biased source? Maybe she just doesn't want to be known as the wife of the guy who tased himself in the nuts. Uh, But on a serious note, I know there's probably more to it than that. There's probably a a medical report, etc. And both Snopes, as well as a number of mainstream news outlets, have declared the story false. So uh, I just thought I'd issue that correction. And even though I have a really dark and irreverent sense of humor, uh, on some basic human level, I do feel bad that someone lost their life and now there's a wife without a husband. But at the same time, I'm like, geez, man, what were you even doing there, you know, in the first place? Uh, The whole stupid game, stupid prizes thing and all that. Uh, But who knows, maybe he thought it was just going to be some mass demonstration and didn't realize how wild and violent things were going to get. I think his wife said that he had a history of high blood pressure and thinks the heart attack was just induced by, you know, the overwhelming excitement of the situation. But while I'm on the subject of the people who died during that siege, I was watching a clip on YouTube from a recent episode of Real Time with Bill Maher, and he was talking about that woman I mentioned in the last episode, the Air Force veteran and Trump supporter who was shot and killed by a Capitol Police officer uh, while she was trying to break through a barricade. I think technically she was trying to hop or climb through a broken window. And there were armed officers on the other side, at least one of them with their gun already drawn and at the ready. I believe her name is Ashley Babbitt, and I'm not bringing her up to rag on her or anything like that. Bill Maher actually mentioned something that made me feel some sympathy for her. Or perhaps I should say more sympathy. As I said in the last episode, the fact that she was a young woman who had served her country, uh, survived multiple tours abroad, I believe, and yet ultimately she died bleeding out with a Trump flag wrapped around her on the floor of the Capitol because she had bought into Trump's bogus narrative that the uh, the election had been quote-unquote stolen from him. You know, that's sad enough. And just so I don't have to issue another correction, I believe technically she may have died at the hospital while they were making efforts to revive or stabilize her. Uh, But yeah, Bill mentioned, and this is mind-blowing, I didn't even know such a thing existed, she had taken out a loan to help her struggling pool cleaning business, and apparently the interest rate of the loan was 169%. I'll play the clip so you can hear it for yourself. I tried researching the claim, but at the time there wasn't much on it. So I guess there's always a chance he might be mistaken. But if it's true, holy crap. One of the casualties in this attack on the Capitol this month was Ashley Babbitt. She was a Trump-loving small business owner. She had a pool cleaning company right down the road here in San Diego. She was an Air Force vet who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and she lost her life trying to prevent Biden from becoming president, even though she had voted for the Obama-Biden ticket not that long ago. But somehow, she came to believe that if Joe became president, horses full of Greeks would rape our women and Georgia would go communist. (laughs) She is the tragedy of the modern Republican voter personified, pissed off at the greed and corruption that, yes, has squeezed the middle class hard, but always coming up with the wrong answer to who is doing most of this squeezing. She was in financial trouble because in order to keep her business afloat, she resorted to a short-term loan with an interest rate of 169%. That's right, she was being charged 169% interest and went to Washington so she could chant, stop the steal. 
She died for a second Trump term, even though that would have solved exactly none of her problems. Yeah, so once again, if that's true, that sounds like some serious loan sharking. I've never heard of anything like that. Uh, I wonder if it's even legal. I have no idea. And I thought high interest credit cards were bad, which they are. And this is something I don't think I've ever really discussed on the show, uh, both because it falls outside the usual wheelhouse and also because it's kind of embarrassing. But I know what it's like to struggle with high interest credit card debt. And it seems to me that in general, people tend to use credit cards differently depending on, and I never thought I'd be waxing philosophical about credit cards on the show, but people tend to use credit cards differently depending on, you know, their financial situation, income bracket, or, you know, disposable income or whatever. Uh, people who are at least relatively well off might use credit out of convenience or even use it strategically as a way to, you know, maintain or, or strengthen their credit score. So maybe something like, oh, even though I could afford to buy this thing outright, I'll put it on the card and pay it off before the end of the month, which is obviously the ideal way to use credit. Pay the debt or purchase off as quickly as possible before the interest has time to accrue. But for people who are struggling financially, it can be a much different story or situation. And I know this from personal experience. I get paid hourly, and given the nature of the business, construction slash general contracting, your hours can really vary from week to week. If there's an unexpected lull between jobs, or if the project is outside and the weather doesn't cooperate, or if there's a couple of down days or things get held up for one reason or another, you can end up with a bad week or a couple of bad weeks, or maybe unforeseen expenses pop up, and you know, it's not right, it's not smart, you feel guilty about it, and you know one day you're really gonna be in the shit, pardon my vulgarity, but out of desperation you resort to using credit cards or other forms of uh, credit to get by. And the trap is, the more you resort to using credit, the bigger your monthly credit card payments get, etc., which means less and less money for you each month. And when you're resorting to credit in the first place because you were low on money, you know, to begin with, the noose just keeps tightening. And a while ago, I actually closed all my credit accounts and enrolled in a debt consolidation program. The only accounts I left open were, I have a care credit account. It's like a special line of credit that can only be used the kind of medical places like uh, the dentist. I basically use it for the dentist and, and veterinary costs. So uh, I left that open. And then, uh, yeah, there was a couple of things that weren't eligible to be rolled into the, uh, the debt consolidation program. My dentist recommended undergoing invisible aligner therapy. So, you know, like Invisalign, but I went with a alternate company that's cheaper, but still seems reputable. I know I probably shouldn't cut corners on your teeth, you know, but uh, he wanted me to do that because even though I wore braces as a youngin, uh, my bite's kind of off again. And he thought it could potentially damage my teeth. I already supposedly have a cracked tooth. And so that line of credit isn't eligible for the debt consolidation program. And then as embarrassing as it is to admit, I'm still paying off a Dell computer that I don't even have anymore. Dell Financial's interest rates are, are like unreal. They're higher than uh, most high interest credit cards, but that's not a big deal. And I think, yeah, I think that's all I have open. Everything I, I don't use credit cards uh, otherwise. Everything's rolled into debt consolidation. And uh, yeah, it's kind of brutal. You pay a large lump sum to the credit counseling company every month, and then they distribute the payments to your various creditors. They also negotiate with your creditors, and they can usually get your interest rates roughly cut in half. So the plan is, you know, bring the interest rate down as much as possible and pay enough every month so you can hopefully be debt-free within several years. And since all your credit accounts are closed, it means obviously you don't have access to uh, any lines of credit, maybe in my case, other than the ones uh, I mentioned, which I which I don't even think about using unless it was like a vet or dental emergency. 
So you have to kind of relearn how to get by only using what you actually have in your wallet or the bank, uh, which I think is ultimately a good thing, even though it can be rough when a lot of what you're earning every month is going to pay down all that debt. Uh, but it's better than the alternative, procrastinating or living in denial as you remain buried under interest, you know, throwing your hard-earned money at the same accounts every month, only to have the balances barely budge. And similar to how I say that I think, or at least hope, that one day society, if we don't destroy ourselves first, will look back on our treatment of animals, factory farming, etc. as a dark, barbaric footnote in our collective history. I also think or hope that one day people will look back and shake their heads at how we once allowed financial institutions to engage in predatory or exploitative practices like uh, offering people high interest credit cards, etc., uh, often with percentage rates, you know, over 20 percent. And then just siphon, you know, siphoning money off of people while they struggle to pay down the balance. And I know the more pull yourself up by your own bootstraps crowd, you know, might be saying, well, it's your own damn fault for being stupid. No one held a gun to your head and made you sign up for a high interest credit card. And I think there is, you know, a kernel of truth or some truth uh, there in the sense that, yeah, taking on credit card debt in general isn't a good thing. Unless, like I stated before, if you're fairly, you know, fairly well off and can afford to use it strategically and pay it off in a timely manner. Um, you know, and racking up high interest debt when you're already struggling definitely is not a good idea. But I think often people will turn to credit either out of desperation or naivety. Uh, you know, maybe they're young and immature or haven't developed a real sense of, you know, fiscal responsibility yet. And that reminds me of something I used to see when I was going back to school. Credit card companies would have tables set up on college campuses with reps trying to push cards on college kids. I don't know if that's something that still goes on or not, but that definitely stuck with me. And let's just say worst case scenario, you have someone who's immature, irresponsible, acts like a dummy and gets themselves in the credit card debt. Even then, does that justify banks charging, you know, over 20% interest? Uh, I know it's, you know, it's business and they have a right to make a profit, but that seems, you know, pretty excessive. I actually researched this before and I read an article that offered, you know, an explanation or the explanation that high interest rates are a way for banks to try to ensure that they're at least able to make some money back in case someone defaults on their debt, you know, files for bankruptcy or just doesn't pay or whatever. And this might, you know, make some sense on the surface, but when I look at my own case, uh, I, ver I very rarely ever missed a payment. If I did, uh, once again, a rare occasion, it was something stupid like I suddenly realized with horror that the payment was due the day before, and as soon as I realized it, I, I made the payment immediately. Or I think once or twice I'd been paying a bill online and thought I had finalized the payment, but there'd be one more window or box I missed. And once again, as soon as I realized the error, I paid immediately. Um, but I was such an otherwise reliable customer with a history of always paying on time that usually without question, they'd reverse you know, any late fee that had been incurred. And so in my case, I'd be like, okay, I've proven myself to be a reliable customer who makes their payments, always pays more than the minimum, had the damn card for years. So why is my interest rate still so high? In some cases, I've probably already paid back the original amount I, I charged the card, but you're still siphoning money off of me in the form of interest. Um, how's this for an idea? How about rewarding loyal, trustworthy customers by incrementally reducing their interest rate over time? I mean, once again, I don't think they should be able to charge ridiculously high interest rates to begin with, but the least they could do is like I just suggested. Uh, decrease the rate over time as the customer proves themselves. You know, uh, my father used to compare credit card companies to loan sharks, which they kind of are. It's like legalized loan sharking or usury. Uh, but unlike loan sharks, they don't send goons to break your kneecaps. They just bury you under, uh, you know, bury you under and get fat off of interest. 
And in some cases, I think this may be a thing that's already happening. I can remember back when I was in high school or maybe middle school, I had friends who were learning how to balance checkbooks, etc. in some of their classes. Uh, but I think kids in school should, as part of their basic education and preparation for adult life, should be taught the basics about finances. I know sometimes there's this kind of taboo about discussing money, how much people make, that kind of thing. But I think kids should be taught exactly how much it takes to survive in the real world, what kind of salary or hourly wage you need in order to afford an apartment or a mortgage, keep the lights on, etc. How much they might have to save to eventually you know, send their kids to school and uh, afford retirement. Warn them about the dangers of credit cards or high interest loans, etc., etc. And I think you at least have to try, but there's no guarantee you'd get through to every kid. Sadly, some people have to learn the hard way. I remember when I was young, and it makes me cringe thinking about it, but when adults would try to encourage me to find a good job or give me life advice about finding a career, I'd be like, nah, someday my band's gonna be famous. And I used to think they just didn't get it or they were trying to discourage me from following my dreams or whatever. But in retrospect, I can kind of remember, you know, the sad or exhausted look in their eyes. And I realized they actually had my best interest in mind and were just trying to steer me in the right direction so I could have a shot at a decent life. And the thing is, and I've said this to people over the years, you can have your cake and eat it too. It doesn't have to be one or the other. If you have a passion that doesn't guarantee a, a real income, like being in a band, you can still follow your passion, write music, play clubs. And now in the day of the internet, you can record music at home and publish it yourself online, uh, promote yourself on social media, etc. But also, you know, try to establish a stable source of income for yourself. Uh, go to school and get a certificate or a degree, learn a trade or just find a stable job with a decent income and kind of, you know, use that to kind of put a stable financial foundation under your feet while you're pursuing your passions. And I think this should be something that goes without saying, but this kind of uh, safety net career or whatever it is should also be something that you're you're drawn to. You know, I mean, find a, a second thing that kind of ignites your interest, but is a realistic way to earn money or or establish a career, you know? And I'll use myself as an example, although it's a... <laughs> A kind of flawed example, and I'll get into that. But I've always loved art, you know, all through my life. I've been drawing since I was a kid. And uh, so I went back to school and got a certificate, then a degree in graphic design. And I think that was a wise choice. You know, I found something that uh, also made sense to me and that I had also always been drawn to or maybe kind of suited for. Uh, where I'm kind of a bad example is I got my degree years ago and I've still yet to, you know, establish a graphic design career or anything. And uh, I can't believe, you know, I have to take some personal responsibility. But I remember it was kind of uh, disheartening, but a lot of people, including teachers, kind of uh, almost seem to discourage you in a weird way. Like, uh, I remember there's one guy who taught a lot of the classes I was in that I looked at as kind of like a mentor. And he would say things like, uh, you know, the graphic design business will chew you up and spit you out. You know, it's brutal and there's a high turnover rate. They're always looking for young people that they can pay less money to. You know what I mean? And you know what I mean? And, uh, and uh, a lot of people, like when I'd go for advice online and stuff like that, they'd say, well, you might have to start out making almost a slave wage of like $12 an hour or that kind of thing. Uh, and even that guy, that mentor I mentioned, he'd be like, he seemed to like he himself was fond of the idea that I should stick with the family business and do graphic design on, a, on the side to earn a, you know, a bit more money or whatever. And, um, you know, I've never been crazy about the family business. There's some things I like about, uh, you know, working with my hands and doing kind of a physical job. But there's a bit of a toxic kind of chemistry between me and my family in certain ways. And we kind of uh, butt heads working together. Um, 
And uh, it can be hard to establish a, you know, your own successful freelance career, um, especially if you don't have a lot of time or whatever. I think part of it, you know, my neuroses come into play that maybe I don't believe in myself enough or I kind of like doubted my ability. And so I would always say, I'll brush up on my skills and then, you know, I'll I'll apply for a job and then that turns into weeks, that, ter- you know, months, years or whatever. And I have this degree that I still haven't uh, put to good use or whatever. And one last thought on that that just popped in my head. I remember feeling kind of bitter, like I, I forget why, but I was under the assumption when I was going back to school for design. And it was a- the school I went to had a really good design program. And uh, I thought that there was some kind of uh, job placement thing that was included. And so when I uh, finally got my degree and, you know, there's basically no help from the school. It was a good school, but um, with caring people. But I mean, I think I'm trying to think there's a big public TV station in this area called WGBH and I don't think I was applying for a job. I think this might have been for my internship. But the guy that I consider like a friend and a mentor, he actually like kind of pulled a string and um, got me an interview for an internship at WGBH, but it didn't really uh, pan out. Uh, It was kind of a good experience. I had a call. I remember she was pregnant. There's this... uh, um, she was probably like in her 20s or early 30s, but there was this woman there who kind of, I think, was like a higher up in the design department. And um, the one good thing that I took away from it is she told me about uh, this important book. I'm looking at it right now. Um, it's like a graphic design handbook uh, that has advice for pricing and ethics and that kind of thing. Uh, So that was good. I remember she actually liked some of my stuff, Peter Brady break. And she was actually showing some of my stuff to like other people she worked with and saying things like, well, this looks like the stuff you designed for that supermarket or whatever. So yeah, it was, it it didn't pan out, but it was an interesting experience, but it would have been cool if there was some kind of job placement thing included, but maybe realistically and just being fair to them. Uh, That might be a lot to ask. It might be rather difficult trying to place every student or guarantee every student a job in an already kind of competitive and crowded field. But damn, I can't believe I rambled that long about credit cards, etc. Next time we'll discuss uh, how to watch paint dry. Uh, I went off in that direction or that digression because I was talking about that Trump supporter that died during the siege on the Capitol and how it seemed she had been struggling financially. And uh, it still sounds so bizarre, but had apparently even resorted to taking out a loan with a 169% interest rate. So I do feel a good deal of sympathy for her in the sense that she was a vet. It appears she was struggling financially. And there's been a story going around, I'm trying to tread carefully here, that she may have once harassed or stalked her husband's ex. And I don't bring that up to disparage her. On the contrary, I'm bringing it up to make the point that she may have had a history of some kind of emotional instability um, or, or something like that. I didn't know her. I'm not a therapist or a psychiatrist. But from the sidelines, trying to put the puzzle pieces together... Uh, It seems like that may have been the case to some degree. I mean, storming the U.S. Capitol and breaching a barrier with armed officers on the other side in and of itself doesn't really, shall we say, you know, seem indicative of mental or emotional stability. I mean, there, there always has to be some measure of personal accountability. She chose to be there, but at the same time, I can't shake the feeling, and I say this with sympathy or pity, that ultimately... Uh, You know, it seems like she was a dupe who served as cannon fodder for Donald Trump, a deluded foot soldier in Trump's last desperate attempt to hold on to power. And of course, there's an ongoing impeachment process. Uh, I realistically, I don't know what will come of that. But like I was saying last week, and I know it might sound kind of petty or juvenile, but I think the families of the dead, both of the dead Capitol Police officers and the families of the dead Trump supporters, should sue Trump, sue Giuliani, sue Don Jr., uh, all the speakers who helped wind everyone up that day. Um, 
I'm not some overly litigious person. I've never sued anyone in my life. And the only time I've ever been in a court building is while serving uh, jury duty and once while I was called as a witness in a civil case. But I, I do believe that in certain situations, it can be the right thing to pursue legal action in an attempt to send a message or hold someone accountable, such as in a, a case like this, where someone's reckless actions led to a, a loss of life. The president of the United States, as well as the other speakers that, that spoke at that rally, wound everyone up with inflammatory rhetoric and then sent them off to the Capitol. And... Um, if you listen back to Trump's speech, he reassures the crowd, reassures the crowd, what was that, by saying that he's going to be, you know, right there with them. But while they're marching off to the Capitol, he slips away. So I think it's kind of folly to expect loyalty from Donald Trump. Well, unless you're uh, Steve Bannon or one of the other characters he pardoned at the last minute. But it seems to me that he basically uses other people like toilet paper. And he has a long history of not paying his debts. And apparently he recently told his staff not to pay Giuliani because he's upset about, you know, the second impeachment. He's thrown Mike Pence under the bus. And as a result, people at the Capitol siege had made, you know, makeshift gallows and were calling for Pence to be hanged. Uh, in fairness to Pence and other, you know, others that Trump has pressured, people can't just magically overturn an election. And as Trump insiders fail to fulfill his unrealistic expectations, because at the end of the day, the election results are the election results. And there's, you know, only so much that they can do. He just chucked them under the bus one by one. Uh, would you have thought even, you know, just a month ago that Trump supporters would have been calling for the hanging of Mike Pence, the vice president of the United States? or former vice president, technically. I'm recording this episode uh, three days after the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. But speaking of his lack of loyalty, and don't worry, this Trump stuff is, I'm almost done with it. Uh, he also released a video where he condemns the actions of the rioters and says, paraphrasing, that their actions should be condemned and they should be brought to justice, something like that. Uh, imagine being a hardcore Trump supporter, thinking that you were being a patriot, bravely sparking the new American revolution on behalf of your fearless leader, who in your mind had an election stolen from him. And then not only does he slink off into the shadows after saying he'll be there with you, but he then turns around and publicly condemns and denounces you and your actions before the world. Uh, and as I understand it, uh, members of the Proud Boys, as well as individuals who had actually taken part in that siege on the Capitol, have um, begun to turn on him. Understandably, I think, but too bad you didn't see through him earlier. <sighs> that was really just meant to be a quick correction and it turned into yet another long anti-Trump diatribe. Hopefully this will be the last episode in which I talk about Trump at any length. But that actually kind of helps me segue into the next thing I wanted to tackle. I had an exchange with someone in the YouTube comments section of the last episode. And I want to say right up front that although the person was somewhat critical, I still consider it to be a very positive exchange. And I file it under the category of constructive criticism. And it's funny, I still feel kind of embarrassed about this. But it was back around my birthday, so it would have been October. I had a couple of negative encounters out in the real world that occurred fairly close together, maybe within about uh, a week's time or so. Yeah, the first incident occurred when uh, it was actually on my birthday. I drove to pick up stock for work and some guy walked up to my car window and started giving me a hard time because supposedly they were doing some kind of work on the side of the parking lot where I was. They might have been cleaning or patching asphalt or something like that. And then a matter of days later, I think, I left work a little early to go pick up my dog at the vet. And I guess some guy didn't think I was turning uh, onto the main road fast enough. And so he angrily, you know, bellows at me. And I say it's a source of embarrassment because in retrospect, they were both such trivial events that they probably didn't even merit being brought up on the show. And I like to think of myself as someone who might be comically neurotic, sure, but also someone who is fairly logical and rational and relatively speaking in control of their emotions. So letting such small stuff get to me because I was stewing on that crap for days, really ruminating on it, playing the incidents over in my head, thinking of little comebacks or gotchas I could have employed, ways I could have handled the situation differently. 
I think the reason things like that tend to get to us, I'll use the royal we, is because we don't like the idea that we may have let someone get away with trying to dominate or diminish us. But negatively obsessing on things like that after the fact, you're just torturing yourself and nothing good could come of it. The other person's probably gone on with their life and you're all cask of the Amontillado, uh, like that Edgar Allan Poe reference. So it's kind of embarrassing admitting I allowed myself to be derailed by something so trivial. But in fairness, I guess it's also, you know, kind of comical and relatable too. One thing I've noticed living with my own neuroses is that the things I worry about or let get to me are pretty universal. They're probably things we can all relate to. But where the neuroses comes in is the unhealthy degree or extent to which I worry about certain things or let them get to me. But three letters, CBT, no, not CBD, but that probably helps too. But uh, CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. It might sound kind of hokey, but I think meditation and stuff like that can really help too. And just overall trying to cultivate a more kind of positive, good-natured worldview. But obviously that's easier said than done. Seriously, though, if anyone wrestles with the law of negative thinking, etc., there's an awesome book a therapist recommended to me probably almost two decades ago. It's called Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy, and it's by David D. Burns, uh, MD. Might sound like some hokey, saccharine self-help book, but it's actually written by one of the pioneers of cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's chock full of little CBT exercises that really make a difference. But the reason I brought all that up and the person who commented on the last episode is probably like, oh no, is this all because of me? If so, don't worry. I was actually just going to make a kind of positive observation uh, that whereas I think negative encounters or run-ins with strangers out in the real world over traffic or parking spaces or whatever can be really kind of visceral and jarring and leave you kind of stewing in your own juices, Online disagreements or online criticism doesn't really affect me all that negatively, especially if it's constructive criticism. And maybe it's because I'm, you know, a fairly laid back guy who tries to be relatively respectful, who tries not to go around starting drama. Uh, I don't get into a lot of online feuds or anything like that. And when people do criticize me, like in the case of this particular viewer or listener, it's usually pretty thoughtful or respectful. Once in a while, I'll get something nasty and I usually laugh it off. Uh, like not that long ago, someone in the comments section called me a quote-unquote gaytheist. And I'm thinking jokes on them. I'm more of a straight theist, but insult noted. I was going to say it might actually be kind of a clever portmanteau in a more positive context. Like if you happen to be both gay and atheist. Uh, power to my gaytheist brothers and sisters out there. And uh, yeah, and once in a while, usually on one of my more popular documentary episodes, I'll get someone commenting on my voice, saying how they can't stand it, had to stop watching or listening, etc. And I'll just be like, how do you think I feel? I have to hear it every time I speak. What's with all the corny jokes? Uh, anyway, yeah, it's funny. Longtime listeners will probably know I am kind of insecure about my voice. All my life, I've gotten comments about my voice. Some people really like it. Other people think I sound perpetually stoned. And seeing how much singing and podcasting, you know, uh, mean to me and seeing how I'm neurotic and worry about everything, uh, I obsess on little things like if the inhaled steroids I take for my asthma are affecting the quality of my voice or if the crap I'm taking from my migraines is drying my mouth out and impairing my speech. But if someone makes a negative comment online, surprisingly, I don't really let it get to me. Uh, what are you going to do? You know, I just try to be good natured and have a sense of humor about it. But the thrust or gist of the YouTube viewer's criticism was that my political coverage has been biased to the point where I'm kind of risking alienating right-leaning listeners or viewers. And I'll actually read the exchange now. And so the person started off by saying, Hi, great channel, but so much focus on slating the right, kind of grading. And then they followed it up with, Maybe you should add on the advert for the show, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and lefties. And then I replied, Haha, point taken, and I appreciate the feedback. You touch on something that's been a concern of mine for a long time. How to balance the show for a potentially diverse audience while still remaining true to myself or staying true to myself. Uh, some of it got cut off there. 
And so then they replied, cheers for taking it positively. It's a great show, clever and in-depth, refreshing. I know it must be difficult to find balance. So, yeah, I, I think that uh, I, I wouldn't even call it a conflict, but I think that, you know, I thought that was a very positive exchange and uh, a very positive uh, resolution there. There was the little jab about changing the tagline to a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and lefties, which I didn't mind at all. I actually thought it was pretty funny. And uh, it, it does, once again, really touches on something that is a genuine uh, concern of mine. When I first started this podcast, I remember I thought of myself as a kind of kinder, gentler atheist. And I really meant it when I said a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. I, I also remember that in the beginning, I wasn't even sure if I was technically an atheist or an agnostic. And then I learned about the overlapping of the two terms, and a YouTube viewer, Denver Chris, I wonder if he's still watching, introduced me to the term uh, agnostic atheist. And when I read that definition, it was like a light went off above my head. Um, it seemed to completely describe my particular worldview. There's the agnostic part, which refers to knowledge. I don't claim to know for certain whether or not there's a God or an afterlife. And then there's the atheistic part, which deals with belief or lack thereof. So once again, I don't claim to know whether there's a God or an afterlife or things like that, but I have some pretty strong doubts and my atheism swings softer or harder depending on the particular belief system concept of God or supernatural faith claim I'm being presented with. Claiming someone walked on water 2,000 years ago is a lot more specific than saying, I think there may be some kind of vague higher power out there, you know? But there have been times over the years where I found myself getting kind of heated or adversarial when talking about religion, and I've wondered if I'm living up to my own tagline, or at least the, uh, you know, whoever part. And it's tough. Once again, it's a difficult balancing act. Because I'm a person who is absolutely fascinated by religion and spirituality, and as I've darkly joked on the show, you know, ad nauseum, ironically, I credit my interest in religion and spirituality for at least in part making me a non-believer. The more you study uh, the history of religion, etc., the more you realize just how man-made it all is. But yeah, I'm someone on the one hand who once again, and hopefully I'm not being redundant, has a fascination with or maybe even a love for religion. I'm someone who's always been interested in things like mythology, comparative religion, biblical history, etc. And some might think it's strange to lump mythology in there, but what are mythologies really but dead religions? And whether we're talking about ancient myths or the text of extant religions, I find some of the stories and symbolism to be very powerful or moving or inspiring. I also love a lot of the trappings or cultural stuff uh, associated with religion, sacred music, religious art and architecture, that kind of thing. That being said, like I've said on the show a number of times, I think it's when people insist on embracing a literal interpretation of their holy books that things can start to get ugly, and that's when religion can kind of, you know, facilitate or reinforce ignorance and can become a kind of vehicle for intolerance and persecution. There are parts of the Bible that are moving or inspiring, but there's also stuff in there like the anachronistic religious prohibitions or injunctions in the book of Leviticus. If a man lies with another man as with woman, they should be put to death. Thou shall not suffer a witch to live. That one might sound silly, but remember the witch hunts of the Middle Ages or the Salem witch trials. Uh, and then there's, you know, the idea of killing people for adultery, etc., Interesting that they don't seem to take the bits about shellfish or mixed fabrics as seriously. Uh, both the Bible and Islamic holy texts have some pretty anachronistic ideas about how women should be treated. But giving that kind of crap any real credence is what, at least in part, I think, you know, leads to things like the demonization of homosexuals, gay conversion therapy, treating women like second-class citizens. So when literal belief leads to or fuels bigotry or the persecution or oppression of others, uh, when people choose superstition over science and reason, when religion threatens to infringe on the separation of church and state, that's when my hackles kind of get up and I can sometimes come off as sounding quite adversarial towards religion. But, and I think I've said this before, my favorite episodes are the documentary episodes. I like doing those not only because I'm personally really interested in the topics I choose, but because they also give uh, a chance to kind of take a brief respite from the kind of stressful 
uh, divisive atheist versus theist kind of thing. And just off, and you know, I can just offer these little documentary episodes, the history of certain holidays or weird historical topics, etc. And I've always had this fear that someone's going to come to my YouTube channel and watch something like my my fairly popular documentary on St. Patrick or something like that, and think, "Oh, I like this guy. He must be a good Christian boy," or something. You know, then they watch one of my topical or news story episodes where I'm beating up on religion or making fun of uh, televangelists, and and maybe they're you know incredibly disappointed or whatever. Uh, yeah, it's weird uh, being someone who's really interested in religion, but who's also a skeptic and an empiricist or you know, someone who really values uh, empirical data, the scientific method, uh, logic, reason, etc. But getting back to politics specifically, to some degree, politics have always been a part of the show, uh, just in the sense that, especially in America, it's hard to, uh, you know, do an atheist or skeptical podcast without politics coming up from time to time, because despite the fact that we're supposed to be a nation that respects the separation of church and state, politics and religion are really intermingled here. And there's an especially strong kind of marriage or symbiosis between the political right and conservative Christianity. You have right-wing politicians who thump the Bible and pander to their Christian base. And then you have televangelists and mega preacher types and uh, conservative uh, church leaders in general kind of talking up uh, politi right-wing politicians who pay lip service to Christianity or suit their agenda. For example, think about the cavalcade of televangelists and, uh, you know, conservative right-wing church leaders we've seen over the past four years telling us that Trump was sent or anointed by God. Uh, so I think it is nearly impossible to completely avoid politics if you're hosting this kind of podcast. But I do readily admit that the show has become a lot more political lately due to the kind of intense political division and the zeitgeist and the antics of Trump. Uh, but now, like I was saying um, to that YouTube commenter, I'm hoping for a return to the status quo where any mention of politics takes place within the wheelhouse of religion or where politics and religion intersect. And it's funny how my spidey or podcaster sense usually tingles as I'm saying something that might come back to bite me. And then stupidly, I often say it anyway. And I realized I had been referring to myself as a quote unquote lefty on the show quite a bit lately, perhaps to the point of it being tiresome or divisive. And I really think it was just something fueled by my own insecurity or my being overly self-conscious. And when I refer to myself as a quote-unquote lefty, it's not an attempt to alienate any right-leaning listeners I might have. But in a strange way, it's almost, you know, the contrary. It's as if I'm trying to say to people on the right, don't worry, I lean left, perhaps heavily left, but I'm still an independent thinker who eschews party politics. And sometimes it's also a way of reminding people on the left uh, that even though I'm kind of a lone wolf who's wary of party politics, ideologically, where, you know, we're simpatico. Um, and then there was one moment from the last episode that I thought in retrospect, or, or that I almost knew in the back of my head while I was recording it, might come across poorly or like I was uniformly bashing the right. And I think I mentioned the same thing on the show not that long ago, but I was more careful about how I couched or worded it. I was talking about Donald Trump's obsession with mail-in ballots and how I thought one reason might be that he assumed people voting for him would be more likely to vote in person, while people voting against him would probably be more likely to opt for voting by mail. And then one possible explanation that I offered for this discrepancy is uh, that Biden voters are probably more likely to be Democrats, secular types, people who probably take the advice of health officials, etc. more seriously. So more likely to err on the side of caution and vote by mail instead of going to a physical polling location and risking exposure during a pandemic. Um, well, Trump supporters, at least the more fanatical demographic of his base, might tend to be more conspiratorially minded, uh, the whole QAnon thing and, you know, other things, um, distrustful of government, you know, with the exception of Trump, who was the head of the government, uh, distrustful of uh, health officials, think COVID is way overblown, 
and so theoretically might be more likely to vote in person. I think my mistake was that I wasn't careful enough with my words. It sounded like I was painting the entire right as mouth-breathing troglodytes who don't believe in science, when obviously there are a lot of highly educated conservatives out there uh, who have enough sense to know to wear a mask and take the words of health officials seriously. And I think they may be kind of a rare bird, but there are even some conservative atheists out there. And there's a fair deal of libertarian atheists. I think Michael Shermer, autocorrect, turned it to a uh, sherbet. And uh, Penn Gillette are both libertarians. But anyway, I've been getting it uh, from both sides lately. Uh, last night, I saw that a Patreon supporter, someone I consider to be both a, a listener and a friend, and I'll err on the side of caution and leave their name out. But apparently they were upset or disappointed in me for the way I kind of recently criticized or mocked Steve Shives in passing. Uh, out of respect for them, I'll forego reading their message, but I'll read my response and hopefully they don't mind. And just to put it in a little more context without reading their message verbatim, they like Steve Shives, and I think they were surprised that I seemed to kind of go out of my way to uh, attack him. So this is what, here's my long-winded um, response. I said, um, yeah, the Shives thing was weird. As I explained in the episodes, I hadn't even really thought of Shives in I don't know how long. So it was a bit strange when a listener suddenly tagged me in a FB post about him getting separated. Almost let the topic go, but for better or worse, ended up mentioning it on the show. I did feel weird picking at him because it's been so long since I've even thought about him that it almost felt like I was picking at a shade or an old memory. My issues with Shives go all the way back to the days when terror attacks and Islamic extremism were constantly in the news. I felt like certain people, like some TYT hosts and Steve Shives, seemed to really go out of their way to handle Islam with kid gloves. A courtesy they seem to deny other religions, well, specifically Christianity. Don't get me wrong, you know my take on Christianity, at least or especially when it comes to its more toxic manifestations, evangelical fundamentalism, biblical literalism, etc., but the double standard always struck me as somewhat intellectually dishonest. On top of that, I just never really personally cared for Steve Shive's personality or his finger-wagging. I could have taken the high road and not mentioned him, which I should have done, uh, but I reckon the toothpaste is now out of the tube. But yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up. I like to think that I'm a fairly decent, thoughtful person, but I'm also a human being. I've, I've been recording myself almost every week for about the past eight years and putting you know that out for the world to listen to. Even if I do my best to be a nice guy most of the time, once in a while I might mess up and punch down when I shouldn't have or have a take you don't agree with. As for going out my way to attack him, I get what the person is saying. I mean, it didn't come out of nowhere. I had just been tagged in a post about Shives, someone I hadn't even thought of in, you know, forever. And so probably poor judgment, but I decided to mention it on the show. And while I was at it to contextualize things, I thought I would offer my own take on, on Shives, and I admit that isn't too flattering. Uh, who knows, I think even uh, TJ, a.k.a. the Amazing Atheist, uh, had said or admitted Shives seems like he could be a decent, likable guy if you're talking about Star Trek or, or something like that. Uh, you know, he might even be a cool guy to uh, to hang around with. But as a content creator, I'm not crazy about him, which is why I haven't thought of him in years, because I don't watch him. Uh, I'd prefer not to have someone perpetually, you know, virtue signaling and wagging their finger at the screen. Maybe he's changed over the last few years, I have no idea. And I know virtue signaling is a loaded term to be throwing around, and it's one I rarely ever use. I know it's something you usually hear from the anti-SJW types, but the image or impression... I have in my head of Steve Shives is him circa 2015 or whenever it was and of him just kind of angrily chastising the camera. And I actually mentioned him a couple of times on the show back then and I criticized him for what I saw as his overly politically correct approach on Islam. But somehow, you know, in the back of my head, I knew this was going to be a thing that would come back and bite me, and it did. Uh, mentioning Shives on the show, uh, I just should have listened to my gut and left Shives where he had been, completely off my radar. Uh, 
I blame you, Liz Marie. I wonder if she's listening. I'm just kidding. I'm using her first name for comedic effect uh, because I love the idea of her hearing her name and being like, what did I do? Uh, but, but she's the one who tagged me in the post about Shives. Uh, she's good people. Uh, I really like Liz Marie. Uh, just matching because uh, I think that it's kind of funny. And as far as the listener who was upset that I disparaged or criticized Steve Shives, hopefully we're good too. I feel bad that you were probably just trying to enjoy the show and suddenly you hear me going after someone you like. And I think it was kind of like the perfect little storm. I lean left, so if I criticize a fairly high-profile lefty, there's a chance someone in the audience is going to take offense at it. And then the fact that I mentioned, uh, you know, personal drama, uh, a separation or whatever, you know, that adds further salt to the wound and makes me come off as that much more caddish. Uh, so henceforth, no more mentioning uh, the name Steve Shives. Uh, that was the last time just now on the show. So pretty much return to the norm. And one more thing before I end the show. I apologize again for the delay in getting new content out. Work with my brother has, you know, been really steady lately, which is kind of a double-edged sword. More hours means a bigger paycheck, but the downside is uh, I kind of dislike my job. And more work means less time to work on the show, which I love doing. And I've mentioned this before, but the crap I take for my chronic migraines really kind of slows me down cognitively. And I really notice by the time night rolls around, I'm really kind of mentally fatigued. I seem to be my sharpest in the morning and the afternoon, but I'm at work. And I'll think a lot about the show during work. Uh, I'll, brain, I'll brainstorm uh, and think about things I want to say, points I want to make, stories I want to cover, etc. Then I get home usually between 5 and 6, eat, work, you know, work out, wash up. I get settled in and realize my brain is completely exhausted. Um, it sucks because traditionally I've always been kind of a night owl who likes to stay up late working on the show or other creative projects. So because of the lack of time and lack of mental focus, it's been taking me longer to put episodes together. But on the bright side, I just finished one, and here it is. And oh yeah, note to self, don't repetitively refer to self as lefty. Don't mention Steve Shives. All right, all right, kidding. Uh, but you guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter, even though I'm not on there a lot. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. Uh, if you want to help the show out monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and help the show for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time. Thank you.